Uh, if you've got a Bible, we're going to be continuing in our sermon series in 1 John. It's called Abide, Life in Christ, Life with Christ. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 4, starting in uh, verse 7. And this is week 9 of a 12-week sermon series in this little book. And I don't know if you've read 1 John on your own at all, but 1 John is relatively a very small book. You could read this in probably 10, 15 minutes on your own if you wanted. And so what happens in, with us is this, that when we go ahead and we take a smaller book like this and we, we spread it out across 12 weeks, what can happen is this. We often miss why John even wrote the book to begin with. You with me? You can often miss the forest amidst the trees. You know, I think this is why one of the problems I have is that I really struggle with reading fiction. I read fictional books, and it's like I get halfway or three-quarters of the way through it, and I'm just so bored. I'm like, why did you write this book? Just give me a sentence, okay? I don't feel like I need to read 900-plus pages of Lord of the Rings in order to understand the concept of not to wear other people's jewelry, okay? I get this, all right? It makes sense to me. Uh, John's a good writer. He didn't write 900 pages. He wrote one sentence as to why he wrote this book. It's going to be there on the screen. You go ahead and take a look. This is what he says. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Here's what John's doing. John's writing to Christians that will hear this, and he's wanting them to know that they have eternal life. He's wanting them to have an assurance or a confidence that they, in fact, belong to God or if they don't belong to God, and that they would know this. And so, Mercy Fellowship, here's my hope for us today. My hope for you today with listening to this sermon is this, that you would treat this sermon like going to see the doctor. You would treat it like a checkup. Some of you, you walk in today, you say, hey, Curtis, I'm, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus. That's great. Let's just do a checkup. Let's just see how you're doing as a Christian, okay? Some of you, you walk in and you say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but when we, we're going to read John, John's probably going to say otherwise. John's actually going to say, oh, no, you're not living as a Christian. You're not acting as a Christian. Therefore, you have to ask the question, are you a Christian? And some of you are walking in this morning and you don't love Jesus. You don't know Jesus. You don't trust Jesus. Here's my hope for you. We're going to be talking about the love of God today and abiding in that love. And my heart and desire for you is this, that you would know the great love that God has for you in the person of Jesus and that this would compel you then to go ahead and place your faith and trust in him and to obey him as Lord over your life. So we'll go ahead and we'll take a look at our section today. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 16. This is what John says to us. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. 
So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. This is God's word. All right, here's the checkup. Here's the exam that Dr. John is doing for us this morning. Do we love one another? Now, this is not meant, church, to be legalistic, okay? I don't want you to think of it like that. Don't look at this and say, okay, well, if I love people more and more and more, then I'm accepted by God. And if I I don't love and I don't love and I don't love, then God's unhappy with me. That's not it. Rather, the idea is this, that you're supposed to go ahead and view this more as fruit or evidence that you do, in fact, belong to God. That this is fruit of a healthy tree that you do, in fact, trust in Jesus. Why? Because God has so loved you, in turn, then, you respond with loving one another. That's what John's saying here. He's saying, do you love one another? Because love's from God. And whoever loves has been born of God, and whoever does not love has not been born of God. John is not allowing us to have a gray area in this. You see this? He's making this really black and white. If you love, you're from God. If you don't love, you're not from God. In fact, in the section that we just read, he uses the word love 17 times, okay? And so it's important for us then to ask the question, what does John mean when he says love? Uh, Pastor Chris said this a couple weeks ago, but when John uses the word world, it, it means something different than the way you and I use the word world. So when John talks about love, we've got to go ahead and define that to see what he's talking about, right? Because we all have different definitions of love. I'm sure if I was to ask even just a couple of you here in the room, we'd get different definitions, right? Some of you would say, well, love's emotional. Love is what I feel. It's my affections. If I was to ask even some of you, uh, some others of you, you would maybe say, well, love is sexual. It's, it's what I desire. It's what I want, um, who I want to be with. How do you define love? Right? I, I think about those uh, yard signs that people place in, their, uh, in front of their houses. You see them in Seattle. They're in Everett, spread throughout Snohomish County. But they're the creeds, these statements of what people believe. And they say, in this home, we believe. And then it's got a couple different statements. And it says, in this home, we believe black lives matter. In this home, we believe uh, women's rights are human's rights. In this home, we believe science is real because the rest of us don't. That's what I feel is getting communicated. In, in this home, it says, for one of the statements, love is love. Now, that seems kind of redundant to me. Love is love. Well, what is love? Well, it's love. It's the same issue we have with defining a woman. What is a woman? Well, a woman's a woman. What is that? All right? It's, it's, it's the same issue that we're struggling with to define love. What do we mean by love in our culture? What is John talking about with love as well? Here's what John's talking about. When we talk about the love that God has for us, it is a love that is marked not by affection primarily, but rather by activity. Do you get that? I'll say it one more time. When we talk about the love that God has for us, it is a love that is marked not by affection um, primarily, but rather by activity. We're going to look at four things today as far as the love of God goes. God's love is active. It's sacrificial. It has an aim, and it's perfecting. Another way you can use the word perfecting is sanctifying. John makes a really astonishing claim. He says this. He says, not that God is loving, although that's true. He doesn't even say God is provoked to love by our actions, because that's not true. He says this, God is love. The very essence of God's being is love, which means this. 
we, when we look at God and we examine his life in the person of Jesus, we get the most pure and perfect glimpse to what love truly is. So if you want to understand what love truly is, you need to look at the person of Jesus. All right, number one, love is active. Verse 9, we already read it, but it says this. The love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. God manifesting himself to us means this, that, that God has come to us in the person of Jesus. Right? God's love is not up in heaven just shouting down, hey, just want to let you know I love you. Hey, just want to let you know from up here where it's safe and things are good and down there where you're messy and sinful, I love you. No, John's saying God is not distant from us in his love. God is not saying, hey, let me tell you about my love. God is saying, hey, let me show you about my love. That's what's happening in this first section right here, right? This becomes really practical for us right off the bat when we talk about imitating God's love in our lives, right? Whether it's your spouse, your kids, your friends, your family, even strangers. Church, do you only communicate your love to other people, or do you actually demonstrate your love for them through activity? Uh, Pastor Chris covered this a couple weeks ago. It's only a, a chapter behind us. John said this earlier. He says, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us love in word, not in word or talk, but in deed and in truth, Right? Like John's got this theme for us to say, hey, don't just tell people you love them. Show them that you actually do, okay? Uh, it makes me think about a, a, an episode from Family Guy that I saw a long time ago. Uh, last time I preached, I quoted Eminem. This week, I'm quoting Family Guy. At Mercy Fellowship, you get what you pay for when you come here, okay? Uh, so I was wa uh, watching a Family Guy a long time ago, and Peter Griffin, uh, the main character, he's walking down the street, and there's a homeless man and the homeless man has got a, a cup, and he's shaking it. You have change to spare. And he says, yeah, I've got it. So he opens, goes down to his pocket, reaches, and he puts his hand in there and walks off. And the homeless man looks, and there's no change in there. He says, you didn't leave me anything. Peter comes back to him. He says, yeah, I did. I put hope in that cup. Hope's in that cup. Don't go waste it all in one place, right? And, and like, that's a, a funny idea, right? Because that's, it's just foolish. It's like you going up to someone who doesn't have any food and saying, hey, I just want to let you know. God loves you. You know how you could demonstrate God's love to them? Cook them a meal. Bring them some food. You know how you could demonstrate God's love to someone who doesn't have clothes? Give them clothes. We're talking about the love that God has for us in this first point right here, that, that God's love is active towards us, right? Don't just tell people that you love them. Show them that you do. So here's a question for all of us to consider, right? Checking our hearts, right? Doing the exam. Does God's love abide in us? Is it present in our lives? In what ways can I be active in showing my love to one another? Perhaps you're like me, and I think this is really a problem actually of our culture. We think of love primarily as an emotion. Would you agree with me on that? I think we think of love primarily as an emotion where I have to feel affection for someone before I actually love them. I think that's what most of us feel. But, but we see differently with God-like love that John's telling us about. In fact, the Apostle Paul, he'll tell the church in Rome, he says, hey, God's shown his love to you in this, that when you are a sinner, when you are an enemy of God, Jesus died for you. 
that we had enmity with God. We didn't get along with God, and yet God in his love still died for us. Love is an action, Mercy Fellowship, far and above it being an emotion. It is an act of the will before it is ever a feeling. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, he says this about loving one another. Don't waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love them. Right? We often think this in our society. I need to feel the emotion before I act. But what C.S. Lewis is saying what the Apostle Paul is saying, what the Apostle John is saying, and what even our Lord Jesus has demonstrated for us is this. That thinking is wrong. That thinking's wrong. The order for loving someone starts with being active in your love, and what flows from that activity is the affection towards that person. Mercy Fellowship, this all comes back to God, right? If we look at him, we get a clear picture of this. I've said this to you guys before, so forgive me for repeating myself. But how many of you are grateful this morning your Bible doesn't say for God so loved the world that he thought well of you? <laughs> for God so loved the world that he was affectionate towards you. All of which is true, by the way. No, no, for God has so loved you and me that he's demonstrated his love for us in this. He gave. That's the point. Love is first and foremost active. Number two, love is sacrificial, right? The love of God is made known to us in the person of Jesus. He's manifested himself to us. He's come down to us, and he's been active in his love towards us. But when we zoom in with the telescope as far as the activity that Jesus had towards us, what do we see primarily about his activity? We see this. We see that his love for us was sacrificial, okay? His love towards us was sacrificial, his love was sacrificial to us in that he left the glories of heaven, a perfect place, and came down to us and lived in poverty. It was sacrificial, as the prophet Isaiah says, that Jesus was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Jesus looks over his creation, Israel, Jerusalem, the people whom he loves, the people whom he's trying to reach, and he weeps over them because they don't want him. He's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. It was sacrificial when he died on the cross. It was sacrificial when he was beaten and mocked, and they mocked him as a king by twisting a crown of thorns and placing that on his head. It was sacrificial when he endured the wrath of God on our behalf because of our sin. That's what that big word propitiation means that we looked at earlier. Jesus was sacrificial in his love towards us, but John specifically highlights two things about this sacrificial love that we need to look at. John highlights this. One, Jesus' sacrificial love for us was this. He came and suffered so that we may have life. Presupposing this, church, apart from Jesus, you do not have life. Apart from Jesus, you are, in fact, dead. Second thing that G uh, John highlights for us by his sacrificial love. He came not because we loved him, but because he first loved us. Presupposing this that we were antagonistic towards him at some point in our lives, right? Like, we're, we're talking about the love of God, church, and, and here's what's really important. We can ascend high and learn about the love of Jesus for us, but when you really understand it, you first need to go deep into your own sin and brokenness and see how greatly God has come down to love you and me, right? 
We are all spiritually dead apart from him, right? At one point in your life, you didn't have an appetite for Jesus. At one point in your life, you did not have eyes to see him, ears to hear him. You were calloused in your heart towards God, and more specifically, towards the person of Jesus. There was an author by the name of Mark Jones. He wrote a book called Knowing Christ. And uh, when he wrote the book, the publishers told him, hey, just want to let you know, your book's not going to sell as well as it should. It's not going to sell as well as we think it should or that you think it should. And he's like, oh, did I, did I write something wrong? Can I do something to add to it? And they said, no, when we've seen a trend, when we put the name Jesus or Christ in the title of books, they don't sell well. People don't have an appetite for the person of Jesus. They don't really care. It's an afterthought. Like you see this even in churches too, Right? All right, Jesus, I've trusted in you for salvation. Now I can just move away from Jesus to the more mature, quote, things in the Bible. Sad thing for us in Christianity that people have a lack of appetite for Jesus, the one who sacrificed for them. Not only were we spiritually dead apart from him, though, church, furthermore, we were antagonistic to him. Like, like one point in your life, you just didn't want God. And you might have never said that out loud, but it's true. We're the prodigal son in the prodigal son story. You know the story? This son, he goes to his father. Father, give me your inheritance. That's due to me when you die. Just go ahead and I wish you were dead now. And I want your gifts. And that's like what all of humanity does. And that's what we've all done at one point in our lives. God, you've got a lot of beautiful things in creation. This is great. Uh, Just get out of the way, God, and let me enjoy your gifts apart from the gift giver. We were antagonistic towards him at some point in our life. Like some of you, you got to hear me on this. You are coming in this morning, and this is you. You're coming in this morning, and you're antagonistic towards God. You're dead towards him. You don't have eyes to see or ears to hear or Jesus. You're spiritually dead. And the, the failure is this, church. If you don't see God correctly, it's going to be hard for you to know who you are. It's going to be hard for you to make sense of the world around you and all the things that are going on in life. And yet my hope for you is this, that Jesus is awakening you here today. That Jesus is is warming up your heart and your affections for him. And if that's happening, let me say this. Don't quench it. Open it up. Uh, Listen to what Jesus is trying to speak to you. Um, Lean in to all that Jesus is trying to do in your life by revealing his great love for you. Let me encourage you with this, church. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 says this. And you were dead in trespasses and sins. Okay? Think about the prince's bride for a second. Think about when Wesley died and he goes to see Miracle Max. Miracle Max says, well, he's mostly dead, which means he's slightly alive. Right? We think that in church sometimes, don't we? Yeah, I'm mostly dead. I'm slightly alive. If I just work hard enough, then maybe I can get my way up. You're not slightly alive and mostly dead. You're dead dead. That's what Paul's saying. And you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Some of you are still walking in today. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, listen, church, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, 
you have been saved. Do you hear what Paul's doing? Paul is talking about what we've been talking about. He's bringing up this mounting case against you and me about how we're not as good as we think we are. We're dead in sins. We're sons of disobedience. We're children of wrath. We're spiritually dead and antagonistic towards God. That's what he's saying. And yet, God, by his great sacrificial love, intervened in your life, pursued you, suffered on your half so that you may be saved. Mercy, fellowship, that's good news, amen? That's great news for you and for me. Paul and John, they're saying this. The good news is not that you love God and that's what saves you. The good news is that God loves you and that's what saves you. You get that? My fear is this. Some of you come into church today and you think, well, okay, well, I need, to, I need to hold on to God. And every time I fail, I slip and I slip and I slip. And then Jesus is a million miles down the road and he's never coming back from me because I've fallen. I've failed. I've been trying to hold on to God by my love and it hasn't worked. It is not you, church, that holds on to God and says, God, I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. Because you will. Rather, it is God who holds on to you and says, I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. This is what God does to you and to me. Mercy Fellowship, is this not what your heart longs for? Don't you long for a love that knows everything about you? All of the things that bring you shame. All of the things that bring you guilt. All all of the, the secrets in your heart that you don't want anyone knowing. That God sees all of that and still says, I'm not going anywhere. You may come in this morning, church, with the best marriage in the world. And praise God for that. A good marriage is a gift from God. But the sad news is this. That marriage is going to end one day. One of you will die first. That love will come to an end. But there is a love that does last forever. There is a love that does go beyond the grave. And it is the great love that God has for us. He went to such great lengths in sacrificing himself so that we may experience his love for us. I, I'm going to ask you this question. I'm, I'm going to be honest up front. I hate this question I'm going to ask you. I'm going to ask you, how does this make you feel? Uh, I usually try to keep that emotional uh, uh, nozzle off on, in my life because I feel like it clouds my thinking. I had a wise pastor, though, say I should open it up a little more. How does this make you feel, church? How does this make you feel? I don't know about you, but this overwhelms me with joy. I know my life. I know my heart. I don't deserve God. I don't, didn't even like God for most of my life. I wasn't pursuing Jesus for most of my life. Even to this day, I'm not the Christian I should be sometimes. I don't read my Bible as I should or pray as I should. And yet God still looked at my life, the mess that it is, and said, hey, I'm going to go after Curtis. I'm going to go and I'm going to die on the cross for Curtis. That is ridiculous. Church, if you ever question the love that God has for you, look to the cross Because at the cross, you're going to see this. There is a God who is willing to die for me. There is a a God who is for me and not against me. This is a love church, not of merit. You can't earn it. And you can't unearn it. It's all of grace, completely undeserving in every way. So the result is this, okay? Just track with me on this. The result is this within our church and within our relationships, John says, hey, if God has so loved you this way, how can you not love one another? Right? If God has so greatly loved us, how can we not in turn love one another? That's what he says in verse 11. 
Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Right? Number two is love is sacrificial. Number three is this, love has an aim. It's not just us as followers of Jesus, church, that say, hey, thanks, Jesus, for this gift of salvation. I appreciate it. I'm going to go home. I'm going to podcast my favorite pastor, Chris Rich, at my house. I'm going I'm I'm to have wine and communion by my bedside, and I'm just going to do this Jesus thing as a lone ranger, right? That doesn't exist in the Bible. That doesn't exist as far as a Christians go. Christians are meant to be in community with one another. And so the church needs to be this then. A church needs to be the place where the worst of sinners can come in and find grace and forgiveness in times of need, right? It needs to be a place where the love of Christ is not only expressed from the pulpit, expressed from our equip nights or our our houses, but it's also felt and experienced through active love towards one another. Uh, I'll go ahead and read this quote to you. I read to you guys a couple years ago. I would read it every week if I could, if I'm being honest. It's from uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he's talking about Christians and how Christians are meant to interact with one another. And he says this, The most experienced psychologist or observer of human nature knows infinitely less of the human heart than the simplest Christian who lives beneath the cross of Jesus. Cross of Jesus, the place where we know the love of God for us. The greatest psychological insight, ability, and experience cannot grasp this one thing, what sin is. Worldly wisdom knows what distress and weakness and failures are, but it does not know the godlessness of man. And so it also does not know that man is destroyed only by his sin and can be healed only by forgiveness. Only the Christian knows this. In the presence of a psychiatrist, I can only be a sick man. In the presence of a Christian brother, I can dare be a sinner. The psychiatrist must first search my heart, and yet he never plums its ultimate depth. The Christian brother knows when I come to him, here is a sinner like myself, a godless man who wants to confess and yearns for God's forgiveness. The psychiatrist views me as if there was no God. The brother views me as if I am before the judging and merciful God in the cross of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you this question, Mercy Fellowship. Is this church a place where people feel the freedom not to sin, but to be a sinner? Is this a place where people can be open about their failures and shortcomings? Like, we have to think about this. I went to a church when I first got saved, and I was an intern at it, actually. It's the same church that, that Caleb was at, and the same church I met Ruth at. And there was a gal who didn't go to the Sunday school classes, single mom, and she didn't go because she went one time and they made fun of her for asking questions. Is this a church that's going to allow people to experience the love of God in such a way where, where, where sinners and people who don't know Jesus and failures and people that have questions can come and be a part of? Or does everyone have to pretend? Do we have to pretend that we've got our act together? We need to, uh, what helps us with this church is this. We need to be humble in remembering we all fall short of the glory of God. We all struggle with sin. And yet, what has God done? He still loved us. He still pursued us. 
Therefore, we all need to taste and experience the love that God has towards us. It's made me really sad seeing uh, this recently. I don't know how many of you watched the uh, Hillsong documentary that just came out on Hulu a little while ago. Um, let me just say up front, I think Hillsong's done a lot of great things for the church at large, but they definitely had some corruption in their upper uh, leadership and management. Uh, but there's one of the pastors who disqualified himself uh, from ministry. His name was Carl Lentz, and he was talking about his experience going to Hillsong College growing up. And he said when he went to Hillsong College, he'd sit down with a counselor, and the counselor would ask you, hey, hey, what sins are you struggling with? And so he would go ahead and, okay, this is, this is a Christian person. I'll share my sins. And he would share them, but then the counselor would start to write them down. And it's like, well, Jesus doesn't keep a record of your sins. Apparently Hillsong College does, though. All right. After that, once they found out what sins certain people struggled with, they would bring them into a room together and then ask them how they're doing with things like lust. And no one would speak up because no one wants to be that person. And what would happen is this. Everyone then has to pretend that they're doing okay when no one is doing okay. It's like the same thing I even see with churches on their websites. They'll say, at this church, we're a happy church. Right? You, you, you can't tie an emotion to a church. If you do that, no one who's sad can go to your church. <laughs> no one who's broken can come to your church. You have to pretend by the time you get to the door and put on a smile, you are not allowed to, and you do not have the freedom to be a sinner. Rather, church, if we understood how much God loved us, we must love others the way that Christ has loved us. Number four. Love is perfecting us. John is calling us to abide in love. And by doing so, he's calling us to a deeper and richer life in the person of Jesus. That's what he's doing here, right? Just think about your life for a second. Is there things in your life that you would like to change? Let me tell you, this morning, you can. You can change those things. How? By abiding in his love. So John says in verse 12, if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. How does God abide in us? How does God live inside of us? God lives inside of us, church, by the power of the Holy Spirit coming into us, indwelling us, empowering us to live this life we cannot live on our own of loving God and loving others. Like, like I cannot underemphasize this enough or overemphasize this enough. You, you need the Holy Spirit. I need the Holy Spirit. Like, look at what Jesus is calling us to, okay? Look at what our Lord Jesus is calling us to. Matthew 5, verses 43 to 46. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends his rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Here's what Jesus is saying. The world lives this way, and the world still lives this way. Hey, love those who agree with you, love your neighbor, but then hate your enemy. That's the way the world lives. Jesus, though, he's calling us to a deeper, richer life of saying this. No, no, love your neighbor, love those who agree with you, and love your enemy. And not only that, but pray for those who persecute you. Mercy Fellowship, we, we cannot do this on our own strength. I need God inside of me to love like God. I need the power of the Holy Spirit to love like this. Um, this section, 
in Matthew chapter 5, and also this section of 1 John we're looking at, there's no caveat or footnote for people that are exempt from God's love. Hey, love people, except, oh, you can love these people in case of in certain situations like this, don't love them. It's not found. God calls us to love everyone. Like, I know some of you here in this church, I know some of you have been treated poorly. I know some of you have been treated unjustly in relationships. And as followers of Jesus, we're called to love people and to love others. Perhaps for some of you, when John says, hey, don't just love in word and talk, but in deed and truth, maybe the first step for love is this. I can only pray for them. That's an act of love. Perhaps for some of you, the first step for loving someone is, hey, I just need to communicate the truth to you of how you've made me feel, how you've hurt me, uh, what I hope to resolve. We are called to love people who have treated us poorly and unjustly. Why? Because our Lord Jesus was treated poorly and unjustly by us. That's why. Now, here's the harder question to ask, and we'll be concluding our sermon with this. Who do you need to love and forgive that you're holding out on? Who do you need to love and forgive that you're holding out on? Uh, if you're struggling with healing from your wounds and tr being treated poorly, may I suggest this? One of the ways of which we heal is that we imitate God. God has created us as people to imitate Him. And one of the ways we can imitate God is by this, by loving others who have wronged us and forgiving those who have hurt us, or even hurt loved ones of ours. Um, Mercy Fellowship, I'm not talking about full restoration of relationships, I want to be clear. Um, maybe that can't happen until one day when Jesus returns. Uh, but I am saying this, pursuing it, at the very least. Because God in Christ has pursued you. Who do you need to love and forgive that you are holding out on? Our Lord Jesus didn't hold out his love on us. All right, Mercy Fellowship, how are you doing your checkup? How's your doctor's visit? In what ways is God calling you to love like him? Is God calling you to trust and believe in his love that he has for you for the first time? I, I look at these verses. This is how John ends, 15 and 16. He says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Our church, Mercy, our church, our world, Mercy Fellowship, is not struggling from too much God-like love. You believe that? It's not struggling from too much God-like love. And I really believe the healing of the world is going to hinge upon whether the church is going to learn to love like God or not. Are we going to love like the world? No, I, I, I like you guys, but then I hate those people out there. Or are we going to love others, love our enemies, pray for those who persecute us? We are called to abide in the love of God. And when we abide in this love, we in turn begin to love like God has loved us. Let's pray this morning.